But we do want to turn our attention over to uh, the Gospel of John today. Um, the other Gospels, as in the timeline that I've, uh, I'm following here, were written earlier on in the Book of Acts period, but we're, now we're in the time period after the Book of Acts is actually completed and, and, and the, the years after that. And uh, I, th- I think, although there's, with most of these books, particularly these ones that come after, uh, the dates are uncertain, but, um, but I've put John in this time frame, and I think maybe you'll see why as we go through it a little bit. But um, I found myself uh, sometimes when I'm, when I'm confused in my mind and, and confused in my heart, uh, that, that my thoughts or my feelings just go round and round and round and I can't make sense of it. And when that happens, which is more frequent than, than you might think, uh, what I normally do, what I often do, is I write in a journal. And I, I very often write a letter to God. And I start it, Dear God, as you would any letter. And then I just try to write down what's going on. And I find that, that as I write my, my confused thoughts, I have to get them organized to get them on a page. And so it's a really good discipline that where my confused heart, I have to get it organized to get, get it out on the page. And so as I was uh, looking at John the last week or, or a bit more, um, this is what I wrote. Dear God, I've been reading the stories about your son in the Gospel of John. To be honest, I find it very confusing. I'm reading these compelling down-to-earth stories about the things that Jesus did and taught. It's great. And they, they are great stories. I mean, we dig into them and, and read them, and, uh, and they're, they're inspiring. They teach us valuable lessons. I'm trying to relate it all back to the highfalutin philosophical introduction. I'm not sure I'm making the connections. Then it transitions from the, from the stories that I like to the whole second half, which is about the suffering of Jesus. I feel out of sync, disjointed, like I'm bouncing around and not really getting it. What am I missing? Ever feel that way when you're reading the Bible? You see, the, the Gospels are, are uh, we usually take them in the chunks because they're written that way. There's a distinct parable or a distinct story or a distinct teaching. And we read, it, read that specific uh, segment and, and understand it, and it gives us amazing things, and we learn so much. But in this case, I'm, I was trying to understand what is the overall message? What's, what are all these stories and anecdotes and teachings, how do they come together into one thing that John is trying to get across to us? And I was having a lot of difficulty with that. And as I was writing these things out and praying about it, an image came to mind. In fact, a memory. It was a memory of a dog that I had when I was just a, a young child. And uh, her name was Floxy, and she loved the water. She was, she was, if there was water anywhere within sight, she was in it. Didn't matter the time of year, the temperature, or anything. She, she was in the water. And uh, in fact, she was, uh, she was taken off the high diving board into the dugout on the farm before her eyes were open. And so she, uh, she, was, uh, she was a water dog. And of course, as kids, we soon learned that if you held her above the water, she would still swim, even though she wasn't in the water. And maybe you've discovered that with dogs yourself. It's, it's kind of looks ridiculous and a little funny and puts a smile on our face. And, 
And uh, I know I've held a, a number of different dogs above the water just to get a laugh out of it. And, uh, and it's, it's just what they do. And so um, that image came to mind as I was trying to understand John. And you're going to have to wait till the end to see if there's actually a connection here. That makes sense to you just because it makes sense to me. So um, I start out this way. In John, God says, I am has come so that you may have life. And I want to, a little bit later, play around with that statement and put it into different kinds of words. And, and you'll see from John's own words that, that this is a, kind of a quote from, from the gospel. And, um, and so it's difficult when we have all these various stories and teachings to try to, try to run a line through it. And so I had to look up the, uh, the Bible teachers and commentators and uh, find some things. In fact, I think be reminded of some things that I, that I had known and had kind of lost track of in, in these readings. And, and I want to start with, with, uh, with several statements that Jesus makes. We're not going to get into them individually. Each one is worth getting into individually, but we just have to skim through. It's kind of like a skeleton, an ugly skeleton that all these beautiful stories and teachings hang off of. And we'll, get, we'll start to understand that John was very specific and careful in how he put his gospel together. I believe that he was writing it um, uh, towards the end of his life. The other gospels had already been in circulation for quite some time. And, and he wanted to, to make a very clear and an obvious statement. And uh, we, we've come to understand the statement as we start to dig into these phrases. So there's, there's these phrases Jesus said, and John makes them prominent as we go through. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Now, none of these statements by themselves stand out. I mean, I, I, I think many of you know where I'm going already because I put the I am up at top, and, and you remember that from some of your Old Testament readings in the names of God. But, but we have to understand that when Jesus said these things, he, he perhaps wasn't saying exactly uh, you know, I am in terms of, you know, the, the Moses burning bush kind of thing. But we, we realize as we go through John that there's a lot of sevens. John depicts or, or relates seven times when Jesus says, I am, and then a description. And it's like he's intentionally trying to say, when God said, I am to Moses, and that was his, his primary Old Testament name, now in the person of Jesus, in the revelation of Jesus, it's starting to fill out, well, what is, what is God? And, and here's some of the, the descriptions. And John specifically, I think, picks seven. Now, what do you know about seven? In the Bible, I'm, I'm not much into numbers meaning a lot in the Bible. I think we can kind of get twisted around into odd cul-de-sacs by doing that. But it's very clear from the very beginning in Genesis where there are seven days of creation leading to rest all the way to Revelation where there's seven churches and there's, there's I mean, there's countless sevens in Revelation. 
Um, that, that seven has a specific meaning, a specific reference in God's word. It's the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of God. When, when there's a list of seven in the scriptures, it usually means this is a summary of the whole. This is the sum total. It is to represent um, the completion. And so John gives us, as he goes through the story, seven times where Jesus says, I am uh, one of these things. Now, that by itself would hardly be worth noticing. But there's another way in which John does this. And he has another seven I am statements, but this time not with the description afterwards. And so these seven go like this. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. But he called out to them, don't be afraid. I am, and I put in the is because I think that might be a more appropriate translation. I am is here. He's speaking about himself. In chapter 8, this is what I said, this is why I said that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Jesus said, When you lifted, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, you will understand that I am. Do nothing on your own, but say only what the Father taught me. And then the last three are more specific. The first ones, you know, we talk that way. You know, I am walking in the rain. I am a pastor. You know, this is language. It's normal. And Jesus uses it, and it's depicted here. And we might not notice it, except for these last three are much more specific and clearly references to the God of the Old Testament. Um, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. That's clearly a reference to the, the God of the Old Testament, the, the, the one who said to Moses in the burning bush incident, I am that I am. That's my name. Tell them I am sent you. And then in, uh, I think I went out of order, didn't I? No, I didn't. Chapter 13, I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. And here again, the I am grammatically is out of place. And so it's clearly Jesus making a reference to himself as the same person, the same God. And the last one is the most uh, obvious. Jesus the Nazarene replied, I am. This is in the rest of Jesus. And they're asking, and, and he asked the soldiers, the, the temple guards, he says, Who are you looking for to arrest? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't say, I am Jesus. He doesn't say, I am. He, says, he simply says, I am. And John tells us that the soldiers fall back in fear. They understand what he's saying. They understanding that he's claiming to be the God of creation. The God of the great Exodus salvation of the Old Testament. And he's now standing before them and saying, I am, he, I am is here again. And I am here to bring another salvation, a better salvation, a better kingdom. They fall back, the soldiers, they lose their courage in that moment because they understand that they may possibly be about to arrest God. Now, when we have the last three and then we realize that John specifically has this phrase in Jesus' mouth seven times, and he already has the seven other I am's, we realize, I think he did this on purpose. 
he's telling us, he's telling anyone who reads this book a very specific and clear message. The great I am God of the Old Testament is back. The great redeemer of God's people in the uh, parting of the Red Sea and the plagues before Pharaoh in the mountain of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments is standing before you in the person of Jesus Christ. I am is here and he brought salvation in those stories and he's bringing salvation in these stories. And it's true and it's real and it's a new covenant and a better salvation and a fulfillment of all that was before. Well, let's, let, let's count to seven another time. I'm only going to give you three. If you want to do this study, John has more than three sevens in his gospel. And they're all worth looking at and putting together into one big picture. But I'm only going to take the time for three. And I think this one's even more important in, in many ways. The seven signs of John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all depict Jesus doing miracles. And they call them miracles, and there's many of them. John only relates seven, and he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs, seven signs. And so as you read along, you'll understand, you'll, you, if you just pay attention, you'll get this, because when, it, when we come to chapter 2 in the first miracle, changing water into wine, in verse 11, John specifically says this, the first sign. And he goes on. We can't get into the details. And so, okay, the first sign. Okay, that should catch your attention when you're reading. Okay, there's a first. What comes after the first? And then in, in chapter 4, when he heals the sick boy, the centurion's son, from a distance, uh, in verse 54, he says, this was the second sign. Now, he doesn't keep on counting all the way through. But I think if you, if you know anything, you know if someone's writing and they say, this is the first sign, this is the second sign, they're giving you a challenge. Okay, can you find the, the rest? How many are they? Count them. And so he calls them all signs as he goes through the healing of the sick boy, the healing of the paralyzed man, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the blind man, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And there's seven. Seven signs. And that ought to catch our attention because it's the number of perfection. It's the number of completeness. And so here we have the great I am returning to earth in human form as a man and as God. And he proves that he is God with seven signs. And there's many different ways that we can understand these signs. And there's depths of knowledge that we can go into in the commentaries and, and the Bible teachers that have studied these things in depth. But let, let me just give you one of the things that, that helps us understand. Each of these signs describes the mastery or lordship of Jesus over a different area of life. So when Jesus turns water into wine, He's showing us a sign that says he is the Lord of the physical matter of this earth. He can change it. It obeys him. He can do what he wants with it. He is the Lord and master of physical matter. Then when he heals the sick boy, we realize that he just says the word and far away in another place, the boy is healed. And he's showing us, I am, I am, that's the phrase, I am Lord over time and space. I don't even have to be there and I can make things happen. I just say the word. Which is also a reference back to the beginning uh, chapter. The word was with God. Uh, Jesus just says the word. 
And it happens. So he's, he's Lord over matter. He's Lord over time and space. And then when he heals the paralyzed man, he, he demonstrates, it's a sign that he is Lord over health and, and over, over physical well-being. And when he feeds the 5,000, he tells us that he is Lord over the food and the things we need for our sustenance. There's a word we have for that sometimes. We call it providence. Just the, the day-to-day things that we need for life that are supplied to us by God. And Jesus is saying, I'm Lord over those things too. I can give them. I can take them away. I can make them a bountiful. If I want there to be leftovers, there will be leftovers. I'm Lord over your daily provisions. The things you need every day for life. And then he heals the blind man. And, and it's interesting in this sign... Because the, the whole story has very little to do with the healing. It's just kind of like a side note. It's all a discussion about something else. And what's the discussion about, if you remember? Who, whose fault is it? What is the reason why this man was born blind? And what's Jesus' answer? It's my fault. He was born blind so that on this day, I could perform a sign that would convince you that I'm the Son of God. So he's Lord over cause and effect. If anything happens in this world, he's Lord over it. If he didn't want that man to be blind, he wouldn't have been blind. If it wasn't for that specific day when Jesus was going to heal that man so that he could perform this sign to convince us that he is the great I am, it wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been born blind. He's Lord over cause and effect. The things that happen in our life, whether we judge them to be good or bad, are in his hands. He is the great I am, the creator of all things. And he's Lord over these things. And then, of course, we end with the rising of Lazarus from the dead. And he kind of culminates that in the last of the seven with a sign that says he's Lord over life and death, over all things. So a complete number, a perfect number, the number of God, seven signs to tell us that he is Lord. Nothing nothing escapes his kingship. It's all under his feet. So seven times I am. Seven times again I am in a different way. Seven signs. I am the great God has come in person. And we ought to be asking ourselves when we see this, when we understand it, okay, if, you know, This is a a fun play, but we know the answer. If God was a person and walked on this earth the way we do, how does he act and what will he do? Because John has now convinced us, he's convinced me, Jesus is the same God from the Old Testament who gave the Ten Commandments, who spoke the words and everything was created. Okay, if, if, if God was a person, what would he do? How would he act? How would he be in the world? And at that point, the whole entire second half of John's gospel is one story over just a few days. The suffering and crucifixion of Jesus. What would God do if he was a person? If I'm a follower of Jesus and I want to live like him, how should I live? Read the second half of John. He lived 
in such a way that people either wanted to be with him and be like him and be transformed by him or kill him. That's how he lived. That's how God lives when he has skin and bones. One of the Bible teachers I, I, look, I looked to this last week, I, I just wish I could remember because I should give reference, but they, they gave a phrase that has, hasn't skipped my mind. It's just stuck there. Um, Jesus loved with nails in his hands. It's a description of the life of Jesus. He loved with nails in his hands. How would God act? We don't have to guess. What would We have the phrase, you know, the little bracelets, what would Jesus do? It's a ridiculous question. We know exactly what he would do. He would love extravagantly, no matter what it cost. That's what he would do. That's what he did do. We know the answer. It's a hard teaching in, in some ways, but it's a... It's an encouraging teaching, and I want to get onto the encouragement that's in there as well. But John himself kind of concludes it. In chapter 20, the last two verses, he concludes his story. Now, I know there's a chapter 21, and so the gospel's not over, but he really does put the conclusion, the cap on his story here. And, and to understand that, you look at the structure, and we see it's very clear that he has a prologue in chapter 1, and then he has an epilogue in chapter 21. And so, so in between those two chapters, you have the, the, the story that he's writing. And, and chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he closes off his account of the life of Jesus with these words. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not all written in this book. But these, and I think we could insert seven, these particular seven signs I've written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we don't have to guess what John's purpose is. This is his purpose. I've written down these seven signs so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God, and that when you believe you may have life in his name. In John, God says, I am has come so that you may have life. Not just any kind of life, the same kind of life that he had. That we might be able to live the way he lived. I mean, just think of those signs and how they demonstrate that he's Lord of all things. One of the main reasons we don't love extravagantly is because it costs too much. We might lose our job. We might be ridiculed. Our family might reject us. It costs too much. And he tells us, I'm Lord of the food. I'm Lord of the wine. I'm Lord of the matter that you, the land that you walk on. I, I'm, I'm Lord of space and time. I'm Lord of cause and effect. I'm Lord of life and death. It doesn't cost too much if you follow me. Because I've got you, both now and for all eternity. There will be rewards that will make it worthwhile. I am has come so that you may have life. And John, God says, I am here to show you the way and provide the way for you to enter my kingdom and live it now. 
It's another way of saying the same thing. In John, God says, I am is here so you can live your true life, what you were created for. In John, God says, love with nails in your hands and you will find true joy and purpose in life. Jesus did these many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are written in this book. But these are written so that you may have that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, the kind of life that he had, the kind of way that he lived, you will be able to live. So let's go back to the dogs just for a moment in closing. I once uh, rode my bicycle from, Vic- from Vancouver all the way to Victoria, up and down the island. And I remember I, I pulled up my camp. I was near Victoria, and I rode through the city early in the morning. I wanted to get through before the traffic got out there. And I, and I was sitting on the beach right on the west coast. I don't know if you've been there in Victoria. And I was all alone, and I was reading my Bible and actually journaling. I remember it quite clearly. And as the day started to warm up, uh, people started coming down the banks to the, to the ocean. And a lot of them, because it was early morning, probably before work, they, were, they had their dogs. And I think every single person tried to get their dog in the water. It, I kind of was starting to laugh. I think, well, why don't you just go in the water? It seems like you're trying to live your dreams out in the life of your dog or something like that. But, but the dogs didn't mind. They, they wanted to chase the stick. I mean, the water was, was freezing cold, but they jumped in with gusto and joy and and got the sticks and came back. And, and, you know, there are some dogs that don't like water, but really a lot of dogs, maybe even most dogs, really love it in the water. They, they go in voluntarily. They go in with, with great speed and energy, and uh, they can stay in there for, for long after you and I would have hypothermia. In fact, there's even dog breeds called, like, Welsh water dogs and stuff like that. I think with the one with the Frisbee is one of those. And, uh, and so we, we like this. It, it gives us, for some reason, you go down to the dock at Arm Lake, and, and any time you go there, someone's throwing a stick in tra- with getting their dog in the water. And, um, and they're, they're quite good swimmers. They're, they're quite good at it, and they swim very well. And we think, you know, if only I could, you know, be like that. And, and, uh, and then if you just pause for a minute and compare the dog to a seal or a dolphin or a fish, you realize, ah, I think the dog's just barely managing. Just barely managing. He's getting some fun out of it, but it's, it's really not what he was made for. He's just managing. Do you ever feel like that in life? Ah, uh, yeah, there's some fun bits, and I get a bit of joy, but the truth be told, you know, I ask you after church, and I shake your hand and say, how are you, and you say, fine. And what you really mean is, I'm managing. I'm getting by. I'm still alive. Just barely, if we're honest. We're like a dog in water. But dogs weren't made for water. They can manage. Yeah, they can manage. But they were made for land and sunshine. They're land animals. Take them out of the water, put them on the land, and they thrive. You leave them in the water too long, even as good as they are, they're going to die. They just manage. Jesus says, I am here 
And I have provided a way for you to enter a life that I have. Through the forgiveness of your sins, through the renewal of your mind and your heart and the coming of the Holy Spirit into your life. Maybe we should play this video when we come out of the baptism. You know, coming out of the water. And we have this promise. And, and what, what God's telling us is you're living in this world that's ruled by sin and darkness and you're managing. But I have something better. You can live in my kingdom life now. You can be forgiven. You can be whole. You can come out of the water and live in the sunshine. Your natural habitat is God's kingdom. The place I created for you is to be the kind of person that Jesus was, to love with nails in your hands. To have the kind of faith that says it's worth the cost because the love is for eternity. That's a different kind of life. And what happens when people live that way? The world responds really only in two ways. I want some of that or I deny it exists and I have to stamp it out. In our world, that mostly happens by just ignoring our faith, just pretending we're not people of faith, by just uh, maybe being a little critical or, or, or ramping up some, some weak atheistic argument or, or throwing you know, some Old Testament passage about violence at us. And, and you know, in Afghanistan, it means cutting off their heads. Refusing to open their eyes and see that there is a better life, that there's a better way that Jesus has opened up for us. We can live that way. But here's the thing. So often, though we have been lifted out of the dark, dreary, cold water of this world, we still act like we're in it. We still act. Do the same things. Say the same things. Pushed around by the same things that push around the people in this world. Yeah, it looks ridiculous. You can laugh. I mean, let me just give you an example. How many times this week did I pick up a little screen and watch a video on some political thing that's making me angry and agitated? Having attitudes and thoughts and thinking about actions that are not godly. And as I'm doing it, I'm thinking in my own head, I should put this down, read my Bible, and pray and meditate, and and go find someone to love like Jesus loved people. And here I am, still watching. I'm just like that dog. I've been lifted out. I've been shown the way. I've been put on dry ground. I'm a person who, who has eternity to live in the kingdom of God, and I can start that life right now. But yet still I act as though I'm in the water. Still I live as though I'm in the water. No wonder the world pokes fun at us as Christians. We make amazing claims that we believe are true. And then we live the same way they do. No wonder. But we don't have to. We don't have to. Jesus says, I am 
I have come to show you the way, to provide the way, to make the way, and to go ahead of you and prepare the way. And you can step into my kingdom right now. You can come out of the dark and dreary, cold water of this world and start living today towards eternity. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've given you new life. Put your faith in me and I will take you there. It's an encouraging message because it tells us it's possible. This is what we were created for. This is what humans were made for, to love extravagantly. And yes, in this world, it will be costly because many people don't want to see it. They don't want to admit that it's possible. They don't want to admit that what they're doing doesn't line up with reality, doesn't line up with the truth. They want to impose their lies so that they don't have to open their eyes and admit their sins and turn to God. So we, we, we are lifted out. If we're people of faith, we are lifted out of our sins and of the, the uh, lordship of death in this world into the kingdom of light. We can live that way. And I know many of you try as I do and then fall many times. That's why we need each other to encourage and lift us up. I'm going to just return to God. Dear God, teach me your ways so I can live as you intended for your followers. Open my eyes so I can see how to live life in your name. I'll ask the worship team to come forward.